Welcome back to Rupture Radio. I'm Kean Prendival, and this week we have a special Easter treat for you all, an episode on the Limerick Soviet of 1919. Back in 2019, as part of the centenary events of the Limerick Soviet, I helped produce a special five-part documentary podcast called The Bottom Dog, which told the story of the Soviet, together with April Scully, who you may remember from last year's episode discussing the TV hit Normal People. Today, we are using some of that material from that podcast for this special episode. If you're interested in finding out more about this subject, uh, there's some links in the show notes, as well as links to a Limerick People Before Profit public meeting I will be speaking at on this subject on April 12th. Without further ado, I hand you over to myself two years ago. Limerick is a small city on Ireland's west coast, where the River Shannon meets the Atlantic Ocean. My parents moved here in 1989, just before I was born, and I've lived here all my life. I love Limerick. It is a beautiful, salt-of-the-earth kind of place. Friendlier than its absent parents of Dublin and Belfast, and edgier than its older brother Cork and its artsy sister Galway. Limerick is a unique and underappreciated, working-class city, with a rich cultural heritage and a treasure trove of radical history. Limerick was well known for its ham and bacon industry, and Limerick docks played an important part in transatlantic trade. At the beginning of the 19th century, however, Limerick also played an important part in the Irish Revolution, and was well known around the globe for its socialist sentiments. On May Day 1918, a rally declared that we, the workers of Limerick assembled, extend fraternal greetings to the workers of all countries, paying particular attention to our Russian comrades who have waged such a magnificent struggle for their social and political emancipation. Less than a year after that resolution was passed by a crowd of 10,000 workers in Limerick's markets field, a Soviet was declared in Limerick City itself. Workers were on strike. They controlled food production and prices. They even set up their own police force and currency. Yet as we commemorate the centenary of this event, very few people in Limerick and worldwide have heard of this fascinating story of popular revolt, betrayal and tragic consequences. This podcast is an attempt to help promote that story, learn the lessons from the past and bring it to life for a new generation. I'm Kean Prendival. And I'm April Scully. So Kean, why did you want to do this podcast? What gave you the idea? So I've been a, a socialist activist in Limerick for, for the last 15 years almost. Uh, um, and I've always been fascinated. Wait, wait, wait. Say what age you are. 30. <laughs> and I've always been fascinated by the story of the Limerick Soviet. But I've been disappointed that the story is not out there more, that people, not enough people know about it. And I thought that for the centenary, um, wouldn't it be great if there was a podcast that could sort of document what happened and why and try to bring this uh, event to a new audience? Okay, it's really important to raise the profile of these historical events, but it's more than just history, I think. For socialists, for people who want to struggle for change, for people who want to struggle against capitalism today, it's about looking at history like and applying the lessons you know, that these yeah. previous activists went through. Yeah, history is a chance for us to study the, the mistakes of the past and, and learn the lessons for the future. Okay, let's do it. Kian, you spent the last number of months reading books, interviewing historians, trying to get a sense of 
the events at the time and what was happening in Ireland, what was happening internationally. So could you maybe start with that just to give us a bit of context um, what the fever was at the time? Yeah, um, I think that there was two big events that set the scene for the Limerick Soviet. Uh, the first was World War I, uh, which started in 1914 and, and led to the deaths of millions of people uh, in, in an interim period of war to decide who would run and rule uh, in Europe. But it also saw huge profits for, for big businesses. Um, and the second major event was the Russian Revolution, which was a reaction to that war, saw Russia pull out of the war as a result of the popular uprising. But it also toppled the, the Tsar, the, the royalty that had ruled Russia for centuries and sparked a revolutionary wave right across Europe, including here in Ireland. Okay, and um, what impact did that have on Limerick? Yeah, so in Limerick, the, the expression of that was the growth of the ITGWU, uh, the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, which grew very rapidly in Limerick in response to very low wages, but also very poor housing, uh, um, quite a miserable standard of life for ordinary people. The ITGWU, just to clarify, that's the union that was set up by Jim Larkin and James Connolly, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, uh, but it, it was founded nationally in 1907 by, by Larkin and Connolly, but it wasn't until 1917 that it really started to grow in Limerick. And I, I spoke to Dominic Hock, who's a local socialist activist, and historian, uh, who wrote his PhD precisely on the growth of the ITGWU in Limerick. A number of attempts had been made to establish the ITGWU prior to the First World War, uh, which failed. Uh, there's very little indication that it gained any kind of support in the period pre-1914. A concerted effort was made to organise the ITGWU in Limerick in, in early September 1917, uh, an industrial organiser was sent to Limerick. His name was M.J. O'Connor, originally from Tralee. And uh, the union expanded quite rapidly as uh, soon as it was established. And by 1919, had about 3,500 workers organised in Limerick and uh, 19 branches in rural areas as well. So it expanded quite rapidly. Now, it wasn't the case that they were exclusively organising unskilled workers. Um, there were local labour societies like the Dock Labour Society who affiliated after, usually after strike action and usually after support coming from the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, they affiliated to the ITGW and became kind of branches within the ITGW as an affiliated member. Okay, Keen, that's pretty rapid growth, zero to 3,500. And like a very radical union too, recruiting lots of workers traditionally not organised by the unions. Yeah, exactly. And it just shows how open the situation was. People were looking for a union that would give a fighting lead. And workers who were organised in smaller local unions, when they saw the ITGWU in action, they joined up. In particular, as Dominic says, you'd have an example of, of, of workers who might go out on strike. The ITGWU would, would go out in solidarity with them. And at the end of it, the smaller union would say, actually, you were such support to us. We want to join up with you. Um, and that was part of their rapid growth was mm. recruiting those existing unions, you know. OK, so demonstrating their weight in practice. It's pretty effective. So at this time, who are the main characters that begin to emerge now and start to be like the key forces in history? Yeah, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of people. Um, one person that the history books talk a lot about is is John Cronin, who would have been the, the head of the Trades Council, um, which was the group that brought together all the trade unions in Limerick. Uh, but actually, I think that there's two main people who helped spark the Olympic Soviet. The first is is Robert Byrne, whose death was the trigger that led to the, the strike that caused the Soviet. And the second was, was Sean Dowling, who was the ITGWU organiser in Limerick and was later referred to as the ideological begetter of the Soviet. 
Um, in terms of Robert Byrne, I talked to Mike McNamara, who's the current head of the Trades Council, who, who and he's done a lot of research into Robert. And in terms of Sean Dowling, in particular, I talked to, to Dominic Hawk about Sean. Well, Robert Byrne was a, a young postal telegraph clerk. Um, he was 28 years of age at the time he died. Uh, his mother, Annie Hurley, was from Limerick and they were business people and well-respected business people in the city. Uh, his father was a fitter from Dublin and uh, when Robert Byrne came into the post office first, he went to work in Cork and he soon found himself back in Limerick then in around 1914 or 1915 where he was working in the GPO in Limerick. Robert Byrne was also the chairman of the local branch of the Postal Telegraph Clerks Trade Union. By 1916, uh, Robert Byrne had come to the notice of the police because of his involvement with the Irish Volunteer Force. And in particular, in uh, July uh, 1916, he had been observed at the funeral of the Fenian Mayor John Daly. Sean Dowling was a, a, a crucial figure, actually, uh, right throughout this period in Limerick Labour history. He was originally from Coven County, Cork. He apprenticed as a fitter in Hall Bolin in, in the shipyards, uh, joined the Irish Socialist Republican Party at a very young age, probably around 13 or 14 years of age, and was the first worker in Ireland to be sacked for anti-war activity in 1914 by the British government because he was working in an area where the British Navy were operating and so on. He was a close confidant to Colony. Uh, he was in Dublin in the run-up to the 1916 Rising and Colony ordered him to leave Dublin rather than participate in the Rising, uh, likely to try and just ensure that he, he, he didn't become a victim of what Connolly viewed was going to be a failed Rising anyway. And in uh, early 1917, he became the ITGW uh, industrial organiser in Tullamore, up until the time that he moved to Limerick to replace MJ O'Connor in early 1918. Okay, so Bobby Byrne is definitely a well-known figure, I think, from this time. Um, Sean Dowling much less so I think as a Marxist um, obviously radicalised from a very young age but wouldn't have ha wouldn't have the same maybe notoriety that uh, Bobby Byrne would have but one of the images that I have of the Limerick Soviet Kian is the group of men all with moustaches <laughs> which mm. when you think about then that it was women who led the charge how does that you know how do those two images gel, I guess? Yeah, I, I think that's something that people don't really realise is that um, one of the, the key workforces in the Soviet was the Cleves uh, workforce, which was predominantly women. Uh, um, and it is, it's that photo of the all the men that people have in their mind. Um, but that's something that came up again and again with people that I interviewed. Uh, and that there's this untold story of the role of, of women in the Soviet. Most of the women who were organised in Limerick at that stage would have been members of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union. And they were primarily organised in two workplaces, which would have been the Limerick Clothing Factory and uh, the Cleves plant in Lansdowne, the condensed mill factory and the caramel factory. And they would have been predominantly the areas. And it's, it's, it's not quite clear exactly how many were organised, but the estimations are around 600 women workers between the two workplaces. Okay, I think that's a good then rebuttal to the idea that it was an all men or that's the image that's betrayed. And a lot of the time that can happen at the start of the 20th century. It's just, it's very um, history, if you know what I mean? 
like I don't think that's the case now. I think the repeal of the Eighth Amendment that was a struggle from below by women water charges a lot of women set up community groups so I think that that image has changed now people can see the leading role that women play in struggle but at that time I think it's good even to have that historical references to say that yeah there was actually 600 women workers that led the the strike against um or the strike for the Soviet yeah definitely and I, I think that there's more work to be done in uncovering more stories uh, so there was w- one really interesting story that Mike Finn uh, told me Mike is a, a playwright. He's produced uh, a new play on the Limerick Soviet called Bread and Our Profits, which is running this April. Um, but but he told me fascinating story of one woman, Sally McGowan. Her story actually predates the strike, but she worked for uh, McCurns Printers, um, and she was one of twelve young girls. She was quite young; she was in her early twenties. She was one of twelve girls in there who went on strike for I think a shilling a week extra, and she led her colleagues, the twelve other girls, into the the ITGWU. And they went on strike with her as the leader of the strike. And the manager, a guy called Eakins, um, came up with a compromise. He said he would give them, I think, uh, six, six pence a week extra. He gave them some of what they were looking for, but on condition that they would leave the union. Uh, the 12 other girls left the union, but Sally McGowan didn't, and she, she lost her job. Um, she worked for a while in uh, a restaurant, and then she moved to America. But I found her story quite inspirational. It tells us that there were certainly women who were engaged in, the, in, in politics, engaged in the workers' struggle, engaged in trade unionism uh, and the trade union movement and so on. Just the sense that I get from the unions back then is that they're, they were much more of a fighting beast than unions are perceived today. Yeah, I, I think part of it was the time. Um, that you had um, more of a revolutionary sentiment. People saw the need for unions a lot more. But part of it was also the, the ITGWU. It was a new union. It was a radical union. Um, it was organising unorganised workers. And actually, most of the, the trade unions in Limerick at that stage were what were called craft unions. They were exclusively for, for skilled workers and um, that practised a, a certain craft, or almost like the old guilds. So you'd have a carpenter's union, a plasterer's union, things like that. Um, but the, the leaderships of these unions tended to be a little bit more conservative. The leadership of the Trades Council at the time was, was quite a conservative body. Some of the leading members, like John Cronin, had been a city councillor, had been an open supporter of the Irish Parliamentary Party for many years. Um, and initially they kind of would have welcomed the idea of the ITGW affiliating but very quickly they became concerned with the radical nature of the ITGW and uh, they saw it as a threat to uh, the position that they had on the Trades Council so they were uh, um, trying to ensure that the ITGW wasn't becoming a dominant force on the Trades Council for example they refused to give the women's branch of the ITGWU uh, full delegate rights on the on the Trades Council. So there, there was a constant conflict, sometimes at a low ebb, sometimes quite intense, between the ITGWU and the leaders of the craft unions on the, the Trades Council. Okay, so you had this radical ITGWU with the likes of Sean Dowling, um, quite militant uh, socialist uh, union. And then you had these conservative craft unions and they kind of rubbed alongside each other, sometimes with this explicit tension, and then sometimes, as Dominic said, there was a low ebb, not so much. Mm-hmm. But how did these then all end up in a general strike? Like, how did this happen? Yeah. Well, well, that's where the, the story of, of Robert Byrne comes back into it, the, the IRA activist who was also a trade unionist. Um, and in January of 1919, he was uh, arrested and he was court-martialed for possession of a gun. Uh, Robert Byrne, as I said, when he was court-martialed on the 21st of January, he was uh, placed in prison awaiting sentence. 
And we know from our review of the police files and uh, the intelligence files at the time that Robert Bourne commenced a hunger strike almost immediately he went into prison. He was agitating other uh, prisoners in there looking for political status. He was the adjutant general of the 2nd Battalion of the IRA, so the most highest ranking member in the prison at the time. He decided to uh, set the pace for them by going on a hunger strike. Uh, they were beaten by the police. Uh, the barbarity uh, was probably the worst that had been seen in Ireland at that time. So what does Mike mean by political status? Um, yeah, so that's the idea that the IRA uh, prisoners, they would have been demanding to be treated as political prisoners. So rather than just being treated as any other common criminal, uh, that they would have been given extra rights, essentially. That they were locked up for their political ideas and should be given more rights to organise within the prison system, for instance. On the 12th of March 1919, Robert Byrne, who was uh, fairly ill at this stage from his hunger strike, he was transferred under police guard to the Limerick Workhouse Hospital which we now know as St. Camillus's. Uh, there was a, a number of local units of the IRA were already planning his release um, once they knew he was going to be transferred over to the hospital. So now Bobby Byrne is out of prison and into hospital and the IRA are planning to break him out. Yeah, but hospital visitation was limited to Sundays. So they came up with a plan to break him out on, on Sunday, April 6th. Uh, the operation was led by Batty Stacks, who was one of two uh, IRA activists on the day who had guns. But there was 20 others who had, who had other weapons. And they went to help with the rescue attempt. Uh, Batty Stack um, had gone in already to visit Robert Byrne and indicate to him something was about to happen. Around 20 other people were making their way up the ward, uh, standing at the end of uh, patients' beds and saying hello and under the guise that they were there um, as visitors for those particular patients and slowly moving up the ward to get near to the top of the ward where Robert Byrne was held at the last bed adjacent to that room. At exactly 3pm then, Batty Stack sounded a whistle, which was the signal for them all to, to pounce. They give the signal then that they're going to pounce, if we can set the scene. What happens then? Uh, they blow the whistle. <whistles> Batty Stacks goes into the room that Robert Byrne is in. Uh, he pulls out his gun. Uh, Byrne tries to get out of bed, but one of the British officers throws himself on top of Byrne and pulls out his own gun. Shots are fired. There's a, a bit of a mixed claim as to who shot who first, um, but in the end, two British officers are shot, as is Robert Byrne. Um, and later that day, Byrne and one of the officers died from their wounds. What was the reaction of people in Limerick City to this, you know, shoot up in a hospital? Yeah, well, there was a massive outpouring of solidarity from people. People saw this as an IRA activist in his hospital bed, shot dead by a British officer. So Byrne's funeral attracted thousands of people. The, the British military saw that massive turnout as an act of defiance, and they tried to clamp down and reassert their authority in the city. There was an order signed on the 9th of April 1919 that the British military authorities, under the orders of Sir Frederick Shaw, the Commanding-in-Chief of Forces in Ireland, proclaimed Limerick to be a special military area under the provisions of the Defence of the Realm Act. And notices of the order were signed by uh, C.J. Griffin, the Brigadier General, uh, Commandant of the Limerick Special Military Area, and it was published in all the national and local newspapers. Barricades were erected and a boundary was commissioned uh, and hundreds of military personnel along with the police attended at the barricades uh, where they had stationed tanks and armoured cars on all the approaches. On what basis did they declare martial law and erect barricades? 
Why? Well, they saw this massive turnout for the, for Robert Burns' funeral as a provocation, uh, as a threat to their rule. And they felt that they had to come down hard to show who's boss. Uh, so they put tanks on the bridges. They put machine guns on the bridges. It meant that on your way to work, you had to pass through a checkpoint. Uh, um, and on the way back, you had to pass through a checkpoint as well. And how do people react to this? Like, were they demoralized? Were they like, I'm going to fight this? Like, what? People were angry. Uh, um, so the, the Cleves workers in particular led from the front. They had a meeting on the, the Saturday. and uh, They would have been some of the most affected by the barricades. Um, but they were also in the ITGWU. The majority of them were women. And their you know, organiser was Sean Dowling. So at that meeting, they took a, a vote to go on strike. And then on the Sunday, there was a citywide meeting of the, the broader trades council which was also called to debate the idea of a, of a citywide general strike. But actually, in, in researching this, I, I came across minutes of a meeting of the Trades Council on the Friday beforehand, which, which referenced the debate, which I think can shed a bit of new light on the dynamic on the, the Trades Council at the time. Here, Darren Maher, who's a local actor who also voiced the clip at the start of this episode, uh, reads out a section of those minutes. Mr Dowling, Irish Transport Workers Organisation said that it was his intention to hand in a notice of motion regarding altering rules of council. His first motion was that the United Trades and Labour Council should meet in Town Hall as it was the citizens' property and that the only place for the United Trades and Labour Council to hold their meetings was there. Chairman, that all alterations be submitted to the Executive Committee. Dowling, has the Executive a veto on all things? So Dowling is saying the union should have their meetings in town hall. And it seems like the chairman then is resistant to that. Yeah, um, but I, I think it's actually a bit more than that. Because Dowling isn't saying that they should ask permission to have their meetings in town hall. He's saying it's public property, so we should go and have a meeting there in effect. Okay. In effect, he's saying we should take it over. Set ourselves up as the authority running the city. Um, and the chairman, who was presumably Cronin, um, is reluctant to do that. He's, he's tying it up in bureaucratic knots. Um, if you, you read through the rest of the minutes and it ends without a decision being taken on this point. But then the very next day, Dowling organises the meeting of the Cleves workers. They vote to go on strike. And the day after that, on the Sunday, the Trades Council is back again meeting, this time to discuss a proposal for a general strike across the city. But this time they have thousands of workers outside the meeting lobbying the, the trade unions to support that strike. The meeting took about 12 hours on Sunday. So it's clear that there wasn't unanimity on the Trades Council in terms of uh, calling the general strike. The proposal for a general strike appears to have come directly from the workers in Cleves, probably marshaled by Sean Dowling, who would have been the industrial organiser responsible for the branch in the Cleves plant. There is little doubt that the Conservative leaders of the Trades Council would have been hesitant about calling a general strike. But there was a very large demonstration outside of the Trades Council meeting at the Mechanics Institute, numbering possibly in the thousands. And I think uh, the, the pressure from the mass of the workers in Limerick at the time kind of tipped the hand of the leadership of the Trades Council and forced them into agreeing to call a general strike from Monday morning. 1919 was the year the trouble all went down The defence of the Realm Act was invoked by the Crown they imposed martial law upon old Limerick town They made the local people foot the bill 
local trains and workers council met for twelve long hours and said we will not recognize the British Army's powers. This city is the people's, we reclaim it now as ours. It ever was and shall be ever still. We are the liberates so be it. We only answer to the people's plea. We care no more for their martial law than the British Army curse for you and me. Than the British Army curse for you and me. And what absolutely fascinates me about it is that at a time before, obviously before social media, before WhatsApp, before Facebook, uh, where most people didn't have phones, there probably would have been about six telephones in Limerick, if even that, that it was possible to mobilise 14, 15,000 workers who just didn't turn up for work in the morning as a result of a proclamation that went up around the town at five o'clock in the morning. That to me is quite extraordinary, that kind of that spontaneity, but also that kind of organisational ability to be able to communicate something as big as that to an entire city within a matter of hours, you know, printing in the printing press they had access to in Cornmarket Row. And then at five o'clock in the morning, fellas running around sticking this poster up around the city. So that was local playwright Mike Finn. What happened then? So the Trades Council, which brought together the main local trade unions, they basically set themselves up as a, a strike committee. I talked to Liam Cattle, literally wrote the book on the Limerick Soviet about what they did. I think the council would have identified very, very early on that there were a number of needs that had to be met and managed and controlled and operated. Early on, uh, they formed four subcommittees of members of the Trades Council. They were responsible for food, which obviously was critical because if you cannot feed yourself or feed the population that's going to bring pressure on you uh, they had what they called a vigilance committee which was looking after the, the good order and running of the city they had a propaganda committee which is very much a term of the of the time 1919 today we would probably call it publicity and PR and they also had a finance committee because obviously that was going to be a crucial factor in in people being able to maintain themselves and the strike committee was pushed along by events. Needs came up, they had to address them. Both Mike uh, Finn and Liam Cahill explained how food was the first major issue to pop up. And here's a clip, first from Mike, then Liam, about, in particular, bread. They suddenly realised, well, how do you feed people? It's one thing to, if everything's closed, how do people, how do people get fed? And there are accounts of, of uh, you know, women turning up at the strike headquarters, the uh, Mechanics Institute, almost on the first day going, OK, guys, we're going to get bread for my children, you know. And maybe lesser people might have capitulated and said, OK, maybe we'll make this strike a one-day or two-day strike and then we'll go back because we've, we've bitten off more than we could chew. But they obviously knuckled down and said, OK, we've started this, we'll finish it, we, we, we will organise stuff. And so they started, as we know, issuing their own permits, so allowing bakeries to open for a few hours every day and bake bread. There was a ship in the docks with 7,000 tonnes of grain from Canada and that was unloaded and the bakeries were opened up. So bread, which was a very important part of the stable diet of people, that became available. Okay, so they reopened the bakeries to make bread, but what about everything else? Yeah, so they, they had to smuggle in the rest of the food. Effectively, Limerick City was under siege yet again, this time by the British Army. But the trade unions came up with ingenious ways around that, as Mike explains in this clip. So some of the food was brought across, sometimes uh, at night, um, 
under the cover of darkness in, in boats across from the north side, from the Thomagate side into the city that way. And there are also accounts, rather colourful accounts, of funerals coming into the city from the, from the city home, from St. Camillus's, I guess, what we now call St. Camillus's, the funerals coming into the city, hearses with coffins full of food. How often that happened, we don't know. It may have happened just once, but I mean, it's just, it's just a great picture of food being smuggled in under the noses of the British in coffins. That sounds like a movie. Coffins full of food, very gothic. Yeah, it's fa- it's fantastic. Uh, um, I loved it. But but then of course you get the food in, and, and what you do, you have to distribute it. So they had to set up food depots across the city, and they also allowed some shops to open up, but with controlled prices. They had to do is they established four depots in various parts of the city and responsibility for the running of those depots was allocated each one of them to a a city councillor and the idea was that these were the depots where food would be received and then food distributed and when we say food for for working people in those days really what you're talking about is is bread potatoes vegetable butter and margarine maybe milk and tea As soon as they opened up the shops on the same day that they announced or decided that they would allow shops to open up for a certain amount of time, they would have realised immediately that some people would exploit the situation because obviously the economic laws of supply and demand would come into play. So they decided that they would set the prices. So they literally, they again, with their trusty printing, printing press, they printed out controlled prices and they posted these up around the town and when they gave a permit to a shopkeeper or a baker to open say you can open tomorrow from you know uh, eight in the morning until 10 and sell bread but you can sell it at this price uh, to make sure that people weren't exploiting the situation in fact i think that they actually reduced the price of bread that was been sold so they seem to have a real control over the over the the city okay so they set prices that was pretty far-sighted yeah, and they, as Mike says, they actually brought down the price uh, of food. And there was an interesting story from a few years later from the brewery Soviet mills um, where the, the workers occupied a factory uh, in County Limerick and, and they ran it themselves. And during the course of that Soviet, they actually managed to bring down the price of bread, reduce the working week and increase wages all at the same time. Okay, so it can show how much better production actually can be done when run democratically rather than run for profit. Yeah, exactly. But um, it was unfortunately, it was slightly different in the Limerick Soviet because the workers weren't directly running the shops themselves. The shops were still run for profit, but tightly controlled by the, the strike committee. Um, and in fact, they set up their own Red Guard to implement those price controls. Um, and they were the people who, you know, made sure that the queues outside shops stayed orderly. They made sure the shops that were open were adhering to the prices I- involved. And I guess they were acting as a kind of a as a kind of a police force. The atmosphere seems to have been, by and large, good humoured. So that's what the food and the vigilance committee did. But Lee mentioned a propaganda committee and a finance committee. What were they doing? Yeah, well, so the the I'll just take the propaganda committee first. They had two jobs. Um, one was the production of their own newspaper and posters. And secondly, they were also talking to journalists from around the country and around the world. 
They printed their own newspaper, a daily newspaper called the Workers' Bulletin, which I think they issued every evening at about five o'clock, telling everybody what was going on, informing people what shops were open, uh, I guess probably telling people what uh, prices the food was meant to be and so on, and just encouraging people um, and explaining that the situation was under control and things were going well and explaining that, uh, you know, that the that they were hoping that they would get backing for a national strike from Dublin and so on. So they were keeping the strikers, keeping their comrades informed of activities right through the week. And were the papers being produced? Yeah, yeah. so the Limerick leader at least got a permit from the strike committee saying they could open up. Um, I actually saw that, that edition of the paper and it had a big banner across the top saying printed by permission of the strike committee. What a brilliant piece of history. And so outside of Limerick, was all of this being picked up by the papers? Yeah, um, it was obviously in all the national newspapers, though vetted by the British Army. But Mike also explained how it ended up in the newspapers right across the world. As luck would have it, there was a, an air race was meant to happen. One of the English newspapers, it was the Daily Mail, put up £10,000 as a prize for the first person who would fly across the Atlantic. Because nobody had flown across the Atlantic at this point in 1919. You know, air travel was in its infancy. And one man, um, a guy called Captain Wood, Major Wood, uh, an Englishman had decided he would fly from Limerick to Newfoundland. But unfortunately, he didn't make it here. He took off from England and crashed in the Irish Sea just off Wales and was rescued, but his plane was totaled. But as a result of his attempt, quite a few international uh, journalists had arrived in Limerick to cover his departure from Limerick. And then they looked around them and uh, looked around and saw, hey, well, he's not coming and we, we've wasted our time coming here. We don't have a story to tell the international uh, press. And suddenly they found themselves in the middle of a, of a Soviet. So they covered that instead. So the word they'd actually get around quite quite a lot. Um, one of the journalists was working for the Associated Press and his column or his reports were syndicated to something like 300 newspapers in America. So little ordinary sort of provincial newspapers in America were reading about the Limerick Soviet. It was on the front page all over the world, Australia, America, Canada, all over, the, uh, all over Europe as well. Limerick all over the news. Yeah, um, <laughs> and it worked its way into the history as well. Limerick Soviet was actually the first of its kind to, to organise and issue its own currency. They printed their own money? Yeah, obviously there would have been a shortage of money. They weren't working, so they weren't getting paid. Um, some of the unions nationally did give money, but not enough. The Soviet took a very pragmatic and very practical response, which is that they printed their own money, which is, in the proper sense of the word, unique in the annals of working class history. They issued this currency. In those days, it was 10 shillings, 5 shillings, 1 shilling, which I've worked out would be about 30 euro, 15 euro, and 3 euro in, in present day terms. And without being legalistic about it, the format of the currency was a promise to pay the bearer this amount of money. Basically, what that was saying was, we, the workers of Limerick, promise to pay you what is on this note uh, when we are in funds to do it. You can actually see this currency, in fact, as part of the centenary celebrations. This Soviet shilling is being reissued. It was a simple piece of paper and it read Limerick, April 1919. General strike against British militarism. The workers of Limerick promised to pay the bearer one shilling. The Limerick Trades and Labour Council. Was this currency accepted by people? Yeah, um, the trade unions had the power behind them. They had the food and they had the promise of uh, support, of financial support from around the country uh, to back up the currency and to ensure that shops did accept it. So obviously the shops were incorporated into this Soviet. But what do the major factories around Limerick, like the, the big bosses that own the big factories, what do they think of this? 
Well, yeah, they, they were forced to accept it too because what could they really do? But they were behind the scenes. They were working with the British military to try to undermine the strike, as, as Liam explained to me. What happens, of course, in with employers is, uh, you know, the tills are no longer ringing. The money is not coming in anymore in the way that it used to. And so they start getting concerned. And I think after about a week, they began to be concerned about what's going to happen here. How long is this going to go on? And they began to start looking for, and Cleves in particular, you know, who had a thriving business in terms of butter, condensed milk, chocolate and so on. Uh, they began to be concerned about how long this was going to go on. And Cleves were a company uh, you'd have to say that were never, let's put it this way, overly sympathetic towards their workforce. It wasn't exactly a, a great place to work. The wages were very low. The conditions were poor. So they began to say, well, look, let's get this over. OK, they won't take British military permits, but maybe we could give them permits. And, you know, if you give us booklets we of permits, we'll give them to our workforce. Uh, and that was the initial compromise. Now, that was shot down in flames within hours by the strike committee because if they weren't going to take uh, permits from British military, they were certainly not going to take them from their employers. Okay, so this class aspect of, of this is really interesting because it started out as an opposition to the British military, but actually they were opposed to also the Irish bosses as well and that whole oppressive class. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a crucial part of this, I think. Um, in future episodes, we'll look more at the broader situation in Ireland but a key part of what was happening was that people were fighting not just against British imperialism, but also against Irish capitalism. And what was the British military's response to all this? Well, they couldn't really do much. Um, in reality, they had lost the power. Um, if they were to, to go in all guns blazing, um, it would have become a major scandal across the globe. But, but more importantly, it would have sparked further revolts right across Ireland and perhaps into the UK as well. Um, so, so they mainly stayed in their barracks and let the Soviet uh, have the run of the place. But just as a segue into our next clip, there was some confrontations and the big one was Easter weekend. And so uh, coming up to Easter Sunday, which would have been the end of the first week, something like a thousand young men and women in their Sunday best clothes went out of the city and they went to Cahardavon Heights and they, they had an open air Cayley up there. I think the plan, there's differing opinions as to whether there actually was a hurling match or whether it was just a guise. But the plan was that about a thousand of them would go out of the city and come back in and confront the military barricades on, on Sarsfield Bridge without permits as a kind of a challenge to, to the military. We march to the bridge where the soldiers stand in line in defence of a realm that is neither yours nor mine and bow to a king just to earn our daily crust but we'll bend the knee no more They arrived, I guess, marching in in some kind of formation in towards the bridge. The soldiers there were slightly rattled by that. The tank, which was normally situated, I think, outside what's now Duns, um, at the end of, on the southern end of Sarsfield Bridge, that trundled along, turned and came onto the bridge a little bit. Um, there was a machine gun in the boat club, in Shannon Rowing Club, and that swung around. And uh, some RIC men, a policeman, came down, ran down from William Street Barracks to reinforce the barricade. But all the workers were doing was they would march up in single file up to the barricade, demand to be let into their city. When they didn't have a permit, they'd be refused, and they would turn around and go back in a big circle and go back and do it again. So it was a kind of a, um, an act of civil disobedience to be constantly demand and be uh, denied access to their own city. And while they were doing all of this, they were singing songs like the Red Flag and so on. 
That's fantastic. I love that image. Yeah, it's, it must have been pretty terrifying as well to have the, the tank there, the, the machine gun pointed at you. But people had that sense of strength. They weren't going to take it anymore. And they also knew that they had support amongst the soldiers too. Okay, so how do we know this, that they'd built up connections? Yeah, it seems that there was some fraternising, as they call it, between the, the soldiers and the people of Limerick. Um, the, the workers' papers of the time actually had articles in it explaining how the British soldiers, or the Tommies as they were called, um, weren't their enemies, uh, that they too were oppressed. Uh, and one regiment of the army actually had to be sent home. And this regiment that had been sent home because they were too friendly with the people of Limerick. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be the case. And they were letting people in and out without their permits and that sort of stuff. Uh, so for the Limerick uh, workers at the Cayley, what happened at the end of the day? Did they get back in? Yeah, so they, they had a big session. Uh, they slept in people's homes in Thomengate on the floor of the Temperance Hall. Um, and in the morning, they snuck back in. And of course, the British soldiers must have thought that they really had caught these people out because how would they get back into the city without permits? But they had that planned as well. They went out to um, to the Long Pavement Railway Station, which is just beyond Thomengate, a little to the north of it. And uh, they boarded a train that was scheduled train coming in, I think, from Ennis to Limerick. Uh, normally, there'd probably be about four people, if even that, getting on that train to go into the city. And suddenly, there's about 200 people get on the train. It got into uh, Limerick Railway Station about 10 minutes later and um, there were soldiers on the platform trying to stop them getting into the city that way or look for their permits. And instead, the about 200 people jumped out the offside of the train and uh, ran, you know, scattered along the tracks and into the city and, and uh, they obviously got one over on the British that way. From the Treaty Stone to Kingdom Come A red sky dawns for everyone in every home And every heart we strike and march together Tell the tyrants to depart from the Treaty Stone We'll rise again and every soul fight to Together, send them crying back to hell. Let no man tell you what you're worth. Let no man bind your hands. Let no man tell you when to work. Let no man take your land. We stand before the factory gate, the workers set apart. What man is wrought together, God nor king can tear apart. Let God nor pope nor royal tell you when to spend your coin. To Caesar, what was Caesar's? But Caesar's dead and gone. But in his place, a thousand more demand your cost of blood. For he no more than one to blood. This time he gets a blood from the treaty stone. The kingdom come, a red sky dawns for everyone in every home. And every heart will strike and march together. Tell the tyrants to depart. Whereas. The workers of Limerick have been on strike since Monday, 14th of April, as a protest against the military ban on our city. And whereas, in the meantime, the question has become a national issue, we hereby call upon all workers who can resume work without military permit to do so tomorrow, Friday morning. We further call upon all those workers whose daily occupation requires them to procure military permits to continue in their refusal to accept this sign of subjugation and slavery, pending the decision of a special trade union congress to be called immediately. 
We also call upon our fellow countrymen and lovers of freedom all over the world to provide the necessary funds to enable us to continue this struggle against military tyranny. Signed, Strike Committee. So we just heard a proclamation put up two weeks into the strike by the Strike Committee effectively calling off the general strike but dressing it up in radical language. Keen, what the hell happened? Well, that's what we're going to get into in this episode, how the national trade union and labour leaders managed to grab defeat from the jaws of victory and how the revolution was betrayed. A week into the strike, the strike was 100% solid. The uh, strike committee had set up various subcommittees with uh, commissioners to run the various aspects of the city, transportation, food supplies, propaganda, which was crucial at the time, the production of their own newspaper and so on. There was an indication, a rumour emerged on the the Sunday night that uh, the Chamber of Commerce were considering attempting to break the strike by reopening some of the shops on Monday or Tuesday of the second week. But the strike was so solid that they completely backed off any intent of doing that. So it gives an indication of the power that existed. Okay, so that's what I remember, the power being with the Soviet. Yeah, exactly. That's where we left things off. That clip is from Dominic Hock, a local historian and a member of the Socialist Party, who has a new book coming out on the Soviet too. That was interesting, his point about them having to back off from them breaking the strike. Yeah, that was a new one for me too. It really just confirms how strong, after the first week, how strong the workers were and how powerless the bosses were when push came to shove. So what was the point of weakness? When did that dynamic change? Well, I asked Dominic uh, what would have been needed to win and here's what he said. A a localised general strike like was taking place in Limerick could not be continued indefinitely. It either had to evolve and develop into a nationwide action or eventually it was going to run out of steam. So I think the crucial element in this was, was the strike going to develop into a nationwide strike? Even if it was only a 24-hour nationwide strike, that would have had an impact. Okay, so they needed solidarity action around the country to keep the momentum going. Yeah, that was a common theme uh, that all those I talked to brought up. Some said they needed a nationwide general strike. Others raised maybe a a 24-hour strike or that even if just the rail workers alone had come out, that that would have been enough to pile uh, more pressure on. But one way or another, things within Limerick were fought to a bit of a stalemate. The British Army couldn't crush the workers, but the workers couldn't force them to call off martial law either. So the trade union leaders outside of Limerick who were posed with this question, what were they doing? Liam Cattle explains that one. They consulted with the national leadership of the Republican movement, specifically the Dáil, the cabinet of the first Dáil, which would have included, would have been chaired by Eamon de Valera, would have included people like Cahal Brewer, Austin Stack, Richard Mulcahy and, and Michael Collins. And they spent three days in, in consultation with them, basically to suss out what, if any, level of support might be forthcoming uh, from them in the event of the trade unions, in the event of Limerick being escalated. And what emerged from that was that a, a plan would be put forward to evacuate the city of Limerick, to leave it as an empty shell in the hands of the British, and that that in some way would um, engender so much international attention and outrage and so on that the British would be forced to capitulate. 
So instead of calling solidarity action, they proposed to evacuate the city. Yeah, it seems like that idea in particular came from the heads of Sinn Féin. The, the broader context at the time was that in January, Sinn Féin MPs had declared themselves to be the alternative legitimate government of Ireland. The national leaders of the unions in particular, a guy, William O'Brien, uh, uh, was very close to them. Uh, and Sinn Féin didn't want a major national strike. So Sinn Féin didn't want to cede any ground to the Labour Party. Is that the point? Yeah, exactly. But why did the Labour leaders go along with that? Yeah, um, I, I, t- I talked to Conor Costick about that. He, he, we'll hear a lot more from him ne- in the next episode. He's the author of a book called Revolution in Ireland, Popular Militancy, 1917 to 1923. But here's what he said about the outlook of the national union leaders at the time. So, you're in charge of a growing union. It's 40,000 probably at this point. It's going to peak at 100,000. And Limerick happens. What do you do? If you behave like a revolutionary, a, a James Conley or a Jim Larkin, you escalate it. If your eye is on the prize of a long-term relationship in a new Irish state where you're acting as an intermediary between Labour and the employers, you're not very comfortable with this kind of militancy, this kind of radicalism. This is, this is stepping outside the boundaries of your existence. This is something frightening and dangerous these hotheads could um they could take you into an area where you could get crushed you could get shot um it's i'm not saying that these people weren't brave it's just that they politically had a conservative pressure on them from the desires to the political goal of becoming a, a part of the establishment of an irish state playing this kind of representative role but not a revolutionary role I think for the union leaders, though, to betray all those workers that stood up against British militarism, that fought inspirationally for a new kind of society, it's pretty treacherous. Yeah, um, but in in their own minds, the vision that they would have had for the unions would have been a slow and steady growth in partnership with the new Republican government. And, And they didn't want to rock the boat too much. So just a creeping reformism, gently, gently, softly, softly trying to improve things little by little. Exactly, and it's fairly standard reform versus revolution kind of thinking. Them, in limiting themselves to reformism, the the problem was that when a revolutionary situation happened, like in Limerick, they ended up on the wrong side, so to speak. Yeah, they wanted to put the genie back in the bottle. Except that if you concede and don't show force with the workers of Limerick, you're just leaving the workers of Limerick open to be crushed. And what was the impact? I can imagine that was hugely demoralising for the people in Limerick. Yeah, well, when when it became clear that the the promised national solidarity action wasn't going to happen. Vultures that had been circling, biding their time, they swooped in. Towards the tail end of the Soviet, before it finally was called off, the Sinn Féin mayor, Alfonso Samara, coupled with the Bishop of Limerick, uh, Hallinan, worked with the British military to try and negotiate a mediated settlement in terms of the use of the permits and ultimately put pressure on the strike committee to call off the general strike on the Thursday of the second week. So Sinn Féin's role was to try and uh, come to an accommodation and a compromise with the British military to bring the strike to an end. There is no doubt that elements within Sinn Féin and rank and file elements in particular within Sinn Féin would have supported the strike, that they assisted the strike outside the city in terms of procuring food supplies and so on like that. But in terms of the leadership locally and nationally, their objective was to limit the impact of the strike 
and the potential impact that it could have on the nationalist movement that existed in Ireland at the time. So about 10 days into the strike, the, after the union leaders said that there wouldn't be solidarity action, the Sinn Féin mayor, together with the bishop, put forward a compromise deal. Essentially, it was that the, the workers would call off the strike immediately and in return, the British would promise to remove martial law in a week's time. That doesn't sound great. <laughs> no, no, exactly. And it, and it didn't go down too well with the workers either. It's clear that the transport union membership in Limerick were opposed to abandoning the general strike in Limerick at the time when the Trades Council put a, the strike committee put up proclamations calling on workers who didn't need permits to return to work. Transport union uh, members tore down the proclamation, the posters, and burnt them. And there was a lot of disquiet over what they saw as the strike committee leaders dividing the workers of Limerick between those who could return to work because they didn't need a permit and those who weren't able to return to work because they were refusing to apply for permits. In reality, the whole thing ended in confusion and disagreement. Uh, And that was primarily because of the approach of the leadership of the ILPTUC uh, in terms of dealing with the general strike in Limerick. Dominic makes this point about what some workers saw as the workforce being divided. Can you go into that point a bit? Yeah, so if we go back to the proclamation from the start of the episode, actually what it says and what the local union said was if you don't need a permit to go back to work, then go to work. So if you didn't need to pass through a checkpoint, basically, you, you were sent back to work. But that meant that the Cleves workers and, and a few others who lived on one side of the river and worked on the other, they were basically left out on their own. Okay, so they were throwing some workers under the bus in order to wind things down. Yeah, and a, a couple of days later, in reality, they, they told everybody to go back to work. And how, like, what was the effect on morale? There was a, a, a mix. There was definitely uh, some anger. You've got to remember that for over a week, the workers in Limerick have been told to just hold out a few more days for the national strike. A national strike is coming, a national strike is coming. Right at the start of the strike, uh, the rail workers actually said that they were going to come out on strike, but they were told to hold on, don't come out yet, wait for the national meeting. Okay, so they were waiting for the cavalry to show up and they never did. Exactly, yeah. Um, and perhaps if there had been more Dowlings uh, and they were more organised, they could have gone over the heads of the national leaders and called solidarity action themselves. But, but unfortunately, that didn't happen. It just sounds like a major letdown. And like the impact that it has, because I think in Irish history, you know, these failings these like letdowns like can have an impact that last decades amongst workers as to what's possible oh well things can't really change you try things it doesn't happen but immediately in Limerick after that event what impact did that have maybe they felt strengthened by you know actually look at what we did just shows the capacity for what we can do again but I think it's probably the former yeah well here's what Liam and Dominic had to say about the impact of the Soviet in the years that followed it the tragedy of it is that I think the results of Limerick what it what it did was that from being a position where the labor movement both at local level and at national level was if you like in joint ownership of the the struggle with the republicans and might even have taken leadership of it moved into a more subsidiary role so that in later times in the war of independence the general strikes that you see such as the munitions strike and the strike against uh, permits which the British imposed on drivers in the country were ancillary and subsidiary to the Republican uh, struggle for independence rather than being prime movers in it as they had been in conscription and up to the point of the Limerick Soviet. (laughs) 
while it can be seen as a defeat in terms of the strike being called off, the reality was that it gave confidence to the workers of Limerick and nationally to move into struggle. And we can see from then on a growing combatancy among the workers of Limerick, particularly the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, engaging in strike action. Often the transport union, all the transport union had to do was um, give strike notice for employers to agree to any demands that were being made. And you had from that the development of the workplace Soviets, the occupation of the Knocklong Creamery in 1920, the brewery, uh, flour mills in 1921, uh, the Broadford Soviet, the Castle Connolly Fishery Soviet in December of 1921, and ultimately uh, the large-scale occupation of workplaces uh, during the Munster Soviets from April until August of 1922, when upwards of 130 workplaces were occupied. Okay, so sort of a mixed legacy. On the one hand, you know, more strikes, more Soviets, but on the other hand, just the union leaders nationally accepting that these are just side projects of the unions and not actually drivers of the Irish Revolution. Yeah, exactly. I think the, the Limerick Soviet is a good example in miniature of what took place at this time. There was a, a revolutionary movement from below against both imperialism and capitalism. and But unfortunately, those in the leadership of the National Trade Union and Labour movement, rather than leading from the front, they were happy to play second fiddle to Sinn Féin. And Dominic Cox summed it up quite well. The problem during this entire period was that there was... A constant conflict between labour and nationalism in terms of who was going to lead the struggle for self-determination. Was the struggle for self-determination to be purely confined to the political sphere or was it going to encompass social and economic demands as well? Was it going to be purely about replacing the crown with the harp or was it going to be talking about the development of a socialist revolution through socialist consciousness? And the reality was that the leadership of the ILPTUC had coattailed Sinn Féin and the nationalist leadership since the beginning of 1917. They had done it through their approach to the conscription crisis and they did it again in terms of their approach to the Limerick Soviet. So from the perspective of the leadership, they didn't want to lead a worker's struggle. They didn't want to place the labour movement in Ireland at the head of the struggle for self-determination. Because the clear and obvious conclusion of that was that they wouldn't just be leading for independence, they would also have to lead a campaign for social and economic emancipation as well. This radio documentary is based on episodes 1, 2 and 3 of my new podcast, Bottom Dog, the story of the Limerick Soviet, 1919. You can find the podcast in your podcast app or online at limericksoviet.ie. In episode 4, we look at the broader context of the Irish Revolutionary Period and tell the fascinating story of the Gary Owen housing occupations of 1922. In episode 5, we consider the lessons from these struggles for today, the prospects for a Limerick Soviet 2.0, and how it could succeed in changing the world. Thanks to Darren Maher for the dramatizations, and Mike McNamara, Dominic Hock, Liam Cahill, and Connor Costick for their interviews. The violin music throughout was by Postpunk Podge. Also featured was a song by David Blake from the play Bread Not Profit, and the song Limerick Soviet by Alan Parry. This podcast was hosted by Kean Prendival and me, April Scully. 
Sound mixing was done by Marty Walsh. Thanks to Ray Burke of Wired FM for giving us studio time and Danny Scott for assistance throughout production. If you enjoyed this show and would like to find out more, you can contact us at info at limericksoviet.ie and once again, please do check out the full podcast at limericksoviet.ie.